0: Hello, and welcome to this episode of Surety Today. Surety Today is a live monthly call-in podcast presented by the Surety and Fidelity Law Group at Wright Constable and Skeen, located in the Mid-Atlantic region. Surety Today is offered to Surety Clean's professionals and is designed to keep you informed about important issues in the industry. Here is your host, Michael Stover.
1: Uh, My name is Mike Stover, and uh, I'm a partner in the Surety and Fidelity Law Group here at Wright, Constable, and Steen in Baltimore, Maryland. And I want to welcome everybody to this special edition of Surety today. I'm joined today by my law partners, Cindy Rogers-Wayner, and uh, Tom Moran, and our associate, Justin Thatch. These are uh, very difficult times we find ourselves in. And because of the special circumstances the surety industry is facing, we felt that it was important to host a special episode so that we could discuss some of the relevant issues facing surety claims handlers. Our title today is "Sureties Battling the Coronavirus. As always, we've muted the line during the presentation to avoid the background noise, and we'll unmute it at the end for questions. We'll start off today with Cindy discussing contract provisions that sureties will need to become very familiar with in light of the impact of the covid-19 shutdown shelter in place orders essential business non-essential business all these new conditions will have everyone scrambling to find contract provisions to shield us or to use as swords clauses such as force majeure governmental action suspension termination for convenience and so forth so Cindy will will talk about some of those next we'll turn over to uh, Tom Moran discuss we discuss the common law defenses of impossibility and estoppel. So, you know, the, the principal throws the keys on the table and says they're done and the obligee says to the surety, well, get out there and get her done. But there's a shutdown order in place. Uh, completion may be an impossibility and if the obligee is the same government that's issuing restrictions, then estoppel may come into play as well. Then uh, we'll turn over to me and I'll discuss uh, some of the hot topics that sureties. Uh, may want to consider like protecting and preserving your rights, uh, looking to insurance protections, looking to uh, COVID-19 stimulus programs, and so forth. And then finally, we, we asked folks for questions uh, in our announcements, and Justin Thatch will, uh, at the end, respond to some of those questions that we received on a variety of topics. So now uh, I'll turn over to uh, Cindy Rogers-Ware. Cindy?
0: Uh, good morning or good afternoon, depending on where you're located. Uh, so, obviously, the the risk for uh, delay uh, because of what's going on with the pandemic is, is a paramount concern to our principals right now. And just sort of briefly to go over some of the different areas that this could impact, uh, the first one, of course, would be staffing issues. Uh, whether that's employees being sick themselves, uh, being quarantined because of potential exposure, uh, not having child care uh, due to school and daycare closures, preventing them from coming into work. Um, there, there's going to be a lot of concern about staff being available or even just being willing to come in to to go to work. Uh, Then you have other staffing issues that could be that uh, you've got employees that were using public transportation uh, that may not be available anymore, or you may have certain things like project management who are used to traveling to uh, different project sites in different locations, uh, perhaps not being able to do that because of uh, travel restrictions going out of state uh, and so forth uh, and then and we can probably all relate to this a little bit uh, with remote work uh, the, the loss of productivity that may come from uh, being uh, trying to work from home whether that's because of all of your family underfoot um, because you're trying to homeschool your kids while working Uh, or just the temptation of the TV or various other things. When I think about this, I I do think of sort of the Jimmy Fallon thing, trying to do his programs um, from home and having his kids interrupting his broadcast. So uh, all of us are probably experiencing some of that productivity impact uh, that's going to impact timely completion. Um, Then you've also got the potential supply chain disruptions because, So many goods are made uh, in China and other places where manufacturing has been shut down. You've got closures of ports, uh, and then you just have, even within the U.S., just general transportation delays because of the the pandemic. Uh, Then, as sort of outside the realm of the principle itself, you've got uh, potential project shutdowns by local government authorities. Uh, Many states have allowed construction to operate as an essential business um, unabated, but other areas, I know Boston, San Francisco in particular, um, have almost all construction uh, shut down at this point. Um, And then you just have the general snowball effect. You know, your principal is only as good as its lower tier subs and suppliers, and if they're struggling with the same issues that the principal is, it's going to create a snowball effect. Uh, Finally, we have uh, with the the global impact on the economy, you've got nervous upstream owners and general contractors who may be slowing down and being much more cautious in the payment process, uh, which is going to put a strain on uh, the principal's financing and its abilities to maybe pay even its own staff, uh, but also make payments to lower tier vendors. So we need to look at the contract. Um, The contract, just like we always say uh, uh, RTFB with our bonds, we need to look at the contracts here and have our principals studying all of their contracts um, because I don't know of a construction contract that doesn't have a completion deadline um, and consequences for failure to meet that deadline, whether that's uh, the other party terminating for default Uh, supplementing the workforce, assessing uh, either liquidated damages or actual damages, and of course all of those uh, can impact the surety through ultimately a performance bond claim. Uh, Likewise, almost every uh, standard construction contract provides that time is of the essence in the performance of the work. Uh, So when you have that situation, uh, you're going to have to look and hopefully find in that contract Um, a force majeure clause, which is just the fancy French way of saying superior force. Uh, Sometimes they're referred to as act of God provisions, uh, but basically giving the principal some form of relief uh, for delays that are outside of uh, its control. Uh, There's typically two different kinds of of force majeure clauses. One uh, sort of is non-exclusive. It may have List a bunch of items, but then it's going to have a catch-all provision, like in anything else outside of the party's control, uh, or something like that. That sort of gives it, that doesn't limit it to specific items. However, there are some that that contain a specific list of items, and you would need to very carefully review that kind that doesn't have a catch-all provision to make sure that uh, something like the COVID-19 pandemic would would meet the specific criteria of what falls into um, the excusable delays. Um, You're also going to need to look at it for, well, what relief does it give the principal? Does it just give the principal a time extension? Because many times that may be the case with the owner's fault being, well, it's not my fault either uh, if it's an act of God, so why should I have to pay for it? So some of them will just only give schedule relief, and that's going to, to have potentially be a problem because then the principal is going to have uh, extended general conditions costs, mobilization, remobilization costs that it may have to bear uh, on its own. Others may allow for recovery of damages. Um, and the other thing to look at is there may be a right, but you have to meet a fairly strict notice requirement And uh, Mike Stover is going to talk about notice requirements uh, in general, but sometimes they're right in the force majeure clause. Other times you're going to be looking at a general notice provision somewhere else in the contract, but you need to make sure that the principal isn't waiving a right to get a time extension or potentially uh, delay impact costs because it doesn't meet a very strict uh, notice requirement. Now, some of the specific examples I was just going to go through quickly. Um, the first one I would say is the AIA contract. Um, I'm referencing now the 2017 edition, but you may be looking at contracts from the 2007 version of the AIA because those are still uh, pretty actively floating around. Um, it's the provision that you'd be looking at is in the, the A201, which are the general conditions that would apply to both cost plus contracts and fixed price contracts. Um, And that provision um, is a non-exclusive. It's found in 8.3.1 of the A201, and it talks about uh, unusual delay in deliveries, unavoidable casualties, or other causes beyond the contractor's control. Uh, 8.3.3 also says that this section doesn't preclude recovery of damages for delay under other provisions of the contract. Um, you also have to bear in mind that a lot of times people use AIA contracts, but they they modify and edit them with other language. So, yeah, you may be looking at this section, but it may not say what the original AIA language says. Uh, the notice provision in the AIA is in a different section. It's down in fifteen point one point three point one, which talks about making claims, and those have to be initiated within 21 days after the occurrence of the event giving rise to the claim, unless, again, if the parties have modified the language of that. Uh, Consensus documents is another um, industry document that may be used, though I don't find it to be anywhere nearly as pervasive pervasive as the AIA. And that talks about, um, that actually specifically references epidemics um transportation delays that are not reasonably foreseeable um, as part of the reasons for uh, excusable delays and the consensus docs which tend to be a little more contractor friendly actually say right in them that the contractor has a right to an equitable adjustment in the contract price Um, federal government contracts are a little trickier um, because They incorporate FAR provisions from the Federal Acquisition Regulation, some of which are mandatory. So you basically have to look at the list and see what's included. Um, The key one here, I would say, would be FAR 52.249-10, which is um, in the provisions for fixed-price contracts, and 52.349-14, which is excusable delays. And um, certainly that also lists specific examples of excusable delays to be epidemics and quarantine restrictions Uh, and basically what the far says is if there's an excusable delay the government can't um, default terminate the contractor then of course you've got your 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 uh, non-industry specific contracts that have been you know created by the owner or or negotiated by the parties and you know they're going to run the gamut of what of what they say in terms of the language. I mean, most of them will have excusable delay language, but it it could be very specific. Um, So you can just have to look very carefully through the whole contract to figure out what the notice provisions are, what the delay provisions are. you know, some of them are very specific about proving a, a critical pass delay and having to prove every bit of the quantum of damages. Others may say you can get damages for extended general conditions costs. Some will even go as far as selling out a per diem agreed amount. Now, what happens if, for some reason, you don't have a force majeure provision in your contract, which is not going to be the norm, but it still could happen? Um, that doesn't mean the principle is completely out of luck. And, and Tom is going to address this a bit with the concepts of of impossibility of performance and impracticality of performance or frustration doctrines that would apply to a surety in a takeover situation also can apply to sort of excuse um, a principal. If, if a project is shut down by the government, um, you know, you've got an impossibility issue regardless of whether your contract has a force majeure. Now on the flip side, you have a situation maybe where the owner decides because of the circumstances to either suspend the performance or terminate the contract for convenience. And I suspect we're going to see a lot more of these in the coming days uh, in the private sector than we've had in the past uh, because of the hit that the hospitality and retail sectors have taken with the pandemic that a lot of the owners are going to decide that they don't want to keep moving forward with these contracts, or they just need to take a pause because of what's going on. Again, um, most contracts have some language addressing this. Uh, The AIA uh, is is found in 14.3 of the general conditions, again, where it just says the owner may, without cause, order the contractor to suspend the work. Um, And then, you know, They can, the contractor can then pursue an increase in the cost and the time caused by that, uh, assuming that the contractor wasn't otherwise in default or causing a delay itself. Um, The consensus docs, again, it's found in 11.1.1, and that specifically references the contractor's right to an equitable adjustment in the contract price for the cost. Um, Federal government contracts are a little more... uh, tricky and there's a few more hoops because the FAR 52.242-14 allows the government to suspend a contract and the contractor is entitled to compensation for increased costs only if it's suspended for an unreasonable amount of time, which is going to vary per circumstance, um, and also have to prove that it had suffered some injuries. then, of course, again, you're going to have your non-industry-specific manuscripted contracts where the language is going to, to to vary, and you're just going to have to read the contract very carefully. Um, termination provision, similar to the suspension provision uh, in the AIA, that's found in 14.4.3. Um, it, what happened is the, the AIA originally, back in the 2007 version, would specifically allow the contractor to get uh, spell out what costs the contractor could get, including its lost profit on the part of the work that was not performed. Uh, that routinely got struck by owner entities to the point that the new, the 2017 version, um, there is a provision in the main contract document that has the party spell out the specifics of a termination fee. Um, Those can be any any kind of arrangement as to what that fee might be. Um, And I think because that provision is so new, um, we're going to see a lot of uh, developments with this when there's been a a termination for convenience, because these termination fees haven't been around um, very long. Um, The consensus documents in 11.4 specifically do not allow the contractor to get um, profit or overhead on the work that was not performed. Uh, they are allowed to get demobilization costs, termination, other termination-related costs uh, of that nature. And then the federal contracts, um, the termination for conveniences in FAR 52.249-2, and those um, basically give the contracting authority Uh, contracting officer the authority to negotiate a termination for convenience settlement. So it's a claim process where the contractor is submitting um, information uh, to, and then there's basically a negotiation or a claim process if the parties cannot work out an agreement on uh, what the contractor should be entitled to recover. Um, And then, of course, you're going to again have uh, you know, manuscripted contracts that may say any variety of different things. Generally, if they're going to be written by the owner, you're probably not going to sign something where the contractor would get the profit for the work that they didn't perform. Um, so hopefully in those circumstances, uh, your your contracting principal has front-loaded their profit on on the front end of their contract so that they don't get hit too badly um, with these uh, terminations. And with that, I will turn it over uh, to Tom to uh, address the, uh, the, the next issues about impossibility and things of that nature.
2: Thank you, Cindy. Uh, a surety facing an impatient obligee, whether it's in a takeover situation or when advising a principal prior to termination, is going to need to be aware of the impossibility defense. It could be useful not just in defending a claim, but in staving off a claim where need be. Um, and whereas a force majeure defense is going to rely on the particular language of the contract and specific case law surrounding that clause, impossibility is a common law defense that, in the vast majority of jurisdictions. This means that even if notice provisions or other conditions precedent for force majeure were not complied with, an impossibility defense still might be possible. The trade-off for that is, is that it's not going to be available in a wide range of situations, even in the context we have today of the hardships that are placed on all of us by COVID-19. Um, Impossibility is a concept that's been around for quite a long time. Um, In early decisions, it was swallowed up by the law of contracts because courts believed that a contract had to be followed, and if it became impossible for whatever reason, then the risk had to be borne by the non-performing party. For various reasons, that has become unworkable and courts now recognize that it's unfair to do that. You can't pin the risk solely on one party when a basic assumption that's implied in the contract fails through no fault of that party. And that's evolved to include situations of commercial impracticability. In other words, where performance is possible, but only at unreasonable and excessive cost. So the elements of the impossibility defense are The unexpected occurrence of an intervening act, uh, the the occurrence was of such a character that non-occurrence was a basic assumption of the agreement and occurrence made the performance impracticable. First, a word about the basic assumption language and foreseeability. Uh, In some of the commentary that you can find online on this subject, it talks about foreseeability And in some jurisdictions, that's the law. However, in the Fourth Circuit, where where we do most of our work, um, they've moved away from that because the human imagination can conjure just about any situation. So the test here in the Fourth Circuit is whether the situation was such a real possibility that the parties could be expected to contract for it, given the subject matter of the contract. So in our circumstances today, I think think most courts are going to agree that a pandemic on the scale we've seen was not seen as such a a, a real possibility that parties in a construction contract would have necessarily addressed it. That's going to change as time goes on. So for contracts signed before February, maybe a little earlier, if the contract dealt with China in particular, this part of the defense will be satisfied. Um, but given how widespread the pandemic is and how it's affecting everyone's life, you can expect that contracts from now on are going to address the disease specifically. And, and where it doesn't, it may well be at the risk of the party you can't perform because of it. So for those of you, for example, entering into takeover and tender agreements, keep that in mind. The, co- the contract needs to allocate risk if COVID-19 or some other pandemic prevents a contract from being completed. Uh, can address availability of labor, materials, stay-at-home orders, even even in separate clauses. So if you want to be excused in the event that COVID-19 disrupts your ability to perform, you need to be sure that it's specifically stated in a new contract. Now that everyone's keenly aware of the threat, that impossibility defense is going to be a much tougher sell for contracts going forward. Um, So, the next question to look at is, was the event's non-occurrence a basic assumption by the parties? For this one, simply citing the virus and related issues isn't going to cut it. The the event has to be more than just the virus. We've got to look at how the virus affects the the project specifically. Um, And that effect should be documented, preferably in written communications. And that then ties into the final question, which is impracticability of performance. That's going to be the thorniest question and is heavily project specific. And that's going to include changed circumstances where attendant costs would be excessive and unreasonable. But that doesn't just mean increased costs. The costs and means have to be increased so much that they defeat the purpose of the contract. An important point in, in looking at all this is that the party relying on an impossibility defense has to exhaust all of its alternatives. So if you're in a phase of a project that relies on a, type of, on a particular type of skilled labor, say there's only one sub in the region who's qualified to do the work and they're shut down due to the virus, get it documented. Ask them to confirm their status in writing um, and keep the obligee informed. Uh, you may also need to see where possible to get a sub from another part of the country uh, or whether government services might even be available to get in touch with qualified workers. Now, if, if a certain material is unavailable, uh, for example, something that is only obtainable from a particular geographic or proprietary source, document your efforts to get the materials from that source. You may need to look at substitutions, uh, alternative sourcing, and and always keep the cost in mind and document that. If it costs 100 times what was assumed in the bin, then that that may be very well impracticable. Two or three times, maybe not. Um, A note about temporary impossibility, which is mainly what we're looking at here um te- ho- well hopefully uh sooner rather than later this is the the covid 19 crisis is going to be behind us and we'll be able to open things back up and go back to business as usual um if it- it- a-, a contract being temporary temporarily frustrated um the purpose being uh, temporarily blocked um, means that performance is temporarily excused that is unless Uh, it would be materially more burdensome to resume than if there had been no frustration, then performance is excused completely. Um, Like, going to move on to estoppel, Uh, it's easy to foresee delay claims from government obligees as a result of the general slowdown. And as Mike alluded to in the intro, some of these claims may even come from obligees who issue restrictions or complete shutdowns. The surety's options for performance are going to be heavily dependent on the state or locality and what orders are in place. There's no one-size-fits-all answer. Um, In in some places, it depends on the character of the project. For example, for defense or medical-related jobs, there there may be more of of an expectation that the job's going to go forward. If there's a total shutdown, your goal is pretty obvious. If you're not physically allowed on a job site, you can't work, you can't send consultants or workers to the site, there should be a time extension for the time that you're barred from working. Um, But what if a principal is allowed on the job because construction is an essential activity, but there are restrictions that affect its ability to perform? Um, such as maximum number of people out on the site, distancing, things that that slow down but don't completely prevent them from being on the project. Um, You can look at at estoppel or frustration or performance as a a way of avoiding delay damages. First, you're gonna wanna check your contract to see what it says about work stoppages, um, government-ordered shutdowns and things of that nature. Equitable doctrines like estoppel aren't going to supplant the plain language of the contract, um, but they can supplement where the contract is silent. So estoppel, it's an equitable doctrine. As I said, it's not based on contractual provisions or statute, so it can be flexibly applied. Uh, Classically, equitable estoppel applies where one party makes a definite misrepresentation of fact uh, and the other party relies on it to its detriment and that forms the defense. Here, we're not dealing directly with misrepresentations of facts, but with constructions not to proceed or to proceed in a limited fashion. Uh, but we can uh, apply the same principles because the non-existence of government order can be considered a basic assumption, like we discussed in the impossibility con- context. And that assumption is simply that it's not gonna all of a sudden be illegal to do what you contracted to do. That applies even if down the road it's found that some of these measures are found to be unconstitutional or ultra race uh, So if we get down a year down the road um, and, and we get decisions like that, the reliance on the order is still justified. Um, my, the last thing I'm, I'd like to talk about is that you always need as that as, as, you always need to keep the precise bond language in mind. Um, in the example that Mike gave in the introduction where the principal leave, leaves the keys on the table during a shutdown and the obligee wants to assert a claim and get paid now, um, just taking as a familiar example, the AIA A312-2010 bond form gives the surety four options once the conditions precedent are met. Once, you've had, once the principal's been terminated and the surety's notified and the remaining contract funds are committed to the surety, or a completion contractor, the surety is required to take one of the following options, have the principal complete, do a takeover, obtain bids and tender, or determine the amount due and pay the undisputed amount or deny the claim. A clever obligee may look at those options in reading the bond form and say, well, sure, you can't do 5.1, 5.2, or 5.3 because of the shutdown, but you can sure write a check That's not impossible, so you have to take option 5.4. You don't need to have anyone visit the project site because we've got all of our very accurate and not at all self-serving documents right here in a Dropbox file, so take a week to review in the safety of your home and send us a check. Um, But you need to pay attention to the language in 5.4. The option there says the surety may waive its right to perform and complete, arrange for completion, or obtain a new contractor. So in my opinion, that language makes it clear that the surety has the right to choose. If it can't exercise any other options, then there's no choice, and therefore it can't perform under the bond. So performance is gonna be temporarily impossible. And I I have a case right now where where it's in a different context but where an obligee has made that exact argument. Um, Now in that case, it was the the obligee waited forever to give notice and self-completed so, we feel pretty good about the outcome in, in that case. Uh, but you can see how it might be a closer question or at least a bit muddied um, in, in our situation here with the virus where obligee can give timely notice and still say that those other options are not available. So, you've got to perform just by writing a check. Um, you all, you've always got to see, to check to see if your bond form guarantees of the surety has the right to choose its method of performance. Uh, and with that, I will pass the virtual microphone back to Mike.
1: Well, thank you, Tom, and thank you, Cindy. Those were all great comments. Uh, i'm I'm gonna hit on a, on a bunch of different little topics and kind of talk about practical issues and and uh, and some other advice here. I would you know I characterize them as hot topics. Maybe some are hot, some might be tepid or lukewarm. I, you know the definition of hotness is personal, so we'll see. Um, the first one I, I titled Protect and Preserve, and it, and it kind of follows on what Cindy and, and Tom have sort of alluded to. You know, as these shelter-in-place shutdown orders and all of that uh, start to impact, everybody has to keep in mind that the, fa- the fact that the project is, may be shut down doesn't mean that the time or the clock is shut down. So you've got deadlines, you've got requirements in your contracts or, or statutory requirements. For things like making claims or asserting mechanic's liens or other bond claims, uh, all of those clocks are going to continue to run even if your job is shut down. So you've got to you've got to pay attention to those. You have got to make sure that um, you know that you're that, that you're preserving these rights, that you're preserving these uh, obligations, and, and providing these notices and, and other uh, documents that are required in order to protect your you know your delay claims, your equitable adjustments, your change orders, your insurance claims—all of those things that dispute resolution rights. All of those things uh, are still in the contract, and and I think you still gotta—I think you still gotta be careful and and, and protect those. Um, you also have to be mindful of the fact that you know an integral part of preserving rights and claims is is that uh, you know you've got to document this. So you've got to have special attention to keeping track of your COVID-19 related costs and impacts so that the claims and notices and all the other things that you're going to be required to file, you'll have the sufficient documentation to do that. And when I say you, I mean, you know, the sureties obviously, but also the sureties pushing their principals to do these things as well. Uh, you know, it does no good to, to provide your notice, but then not have the backup to actually prove your claim later. Uh, if there's a project shutdown, then you need to determine what the applicable contra- contract requirements are for protecting the site, protecting the work, the materials, the equipment, the work of others. You've got to look through the contract and see who bears the risk of loss on that and and, and, and who is responsible for such damage that might occur and make sure that the necessary steps are being taken by the principal or the surety if the surety is involved directly in the project. So. Better to, to take the time and protect now than to pay later for damage or theft. So the next uh, topic that I'll touch on is called "Let's Make a Deal." The federal government may be willing to make a deal. On March 20th, uh, 2020, the Office of Management and Budget (OMB) issued memorandum number M-20-18 to the heads of all executive departments and agencies entitled uh, "Managing Federal Contract Performance Issues." associated with the novel coronavirus. In the memorandum, the OMB states that, quote, agencies should be flexible in providing extensions to performance dates if a contractor is unable to perform in a timely manner due to quarantining, social distancing, or other COVID-19 related interruptions. So, uh, you know, the the OMB is saying saying to the agencies, you got to be flexible with this situation. Uh, The OMB provided additional guidance to the memorandum in an FAQ that was attached. The FAQ provides that the government should be as flexible as possible in finding solutions when a contractor is unable to meet project schedules due to COVID-19 quarantine restrictions or exposure. Government agencies are encouraged to look for other solutions if completion with the existing contractor is not feasible, including termination for convenience. The OMB emphasized that such actions should be taken without negatively impacting the contractor's performance rating. The OMB further stated that requests for equitable adjustment associated with increased costs related to safety measures taken by contractors to protect employees from COVID-19, including costs for performance disruption, should be considered on a case-by-case basis, taking into account uh, the contractor's attempts to comply with CDC guidance or um, or other standards that have been promulgated. Sureties uh, may be able to use the OMB guidance in this memorandum, you know, to structure a descoping of work or termination for convenience or a buyout of the bonded contract as a means of resolving a performance bond claim. If a surety is in a takeover position, it may be able to use the OMB guidance memo to justify a request for equitable adjustment to recover increased costs for COVID-19 impacts, obtain schedule extensions, or mitigate LDs. So just keep that in mind that there is guidance out there from uh, from the government that should be filtering down to all the the uh, contracting officers and such that you're dealing with. The next topic is is looking for salvage uh, business interruption insurance. There's been a lot uh, written about that if you're following along in the in the uh, in, in the articles and things that people are writing. Contractors typically have a variety of insurance policies that may apply to a bond a project and. Under certain circumstances, the surety may be able to seek it or assert a claim against such policies to recover costs incurred. One such coverage that comes into play is the, is the business interruption. In theory, this coverage is supposed to reimburse and insured the losses in business revenue caused by an interruption in business operations. Obviously, with COVID-19 impacts such as shutdowns, quarantines, decontamination, many bonding contractors may experience lost revenue from interruption of their businesses. The problem with this type of insurance is that it's written on a property loss policy format and typically requires physical loss or damage to trigger coverage. Further, many of the policies um, have governmental authority exclusions or potential exclusions for virus contamination. After the SARS epidemic years ago, uh, ISO began incorporating such exclusions. So you've got to look at the policy, obviously. In the absence of such exclusions, it may still be possible to get coverage for business interruptions caused by COVID-19 under these, um, under these policies. There have been cases across the country finding that things such as mold, fumes, contamination can constitute physical damage or loss for purposes of such coverage. Further, several state governments have introduced legislation to retroactively mandate coverage uh, for business interruption caused by COVID-19. And there are a few cases that have been filed challenging the denial of coverage for COVID-19 under the business interruption uh, policies. Uh, I think one is filed, the first was filed in Louisiana. Another one has been filed in Florida. So stay tuned on this issue and whether or not uh, you might be able to get coverage there. The next topic uh, I call getting your piece of the pie. The uh, coronavirus Aid Relief and Economic Security Act CARES, um, is, is has recently been passed into law, and and you've got situations where if, if you're uh, bonded principal uh, or financing uh, financing a project or working with the principal to complete projects, sure to be should be pushing the principal to apply for these new loans and, and uh, protections that are being offered by the government as a result of the pandemic. The new CARES Act. Um, expands the Paycheck Protection Program of the Small Business Act and applies to qualifying businesses that have fewer than 500 employees or that meet the SBA size standards under the uh, under the industry standards, uh, the NAICS. CARES Act loans are available through lenders that administer SBA loans and are available for up to 250% of average monthly payroll costs, up to $10 million. This amount is for the purpose of covering up to eight weeks of payroll in other business operation expenses. So things like payroll costs, group health care benefits, employee salaries, other compensations, uh, payments of mortgage interest, rent payments, interest on other debt, and utility payments are all covered. The, uh, the maximum uh, amount or term of these loans is 10 years and interest rates are capped at 4%. There's no personal guarantee, no collateral required and the recipient is not required to certify that they are otherwise unable to obtain credit. Another feature of the loan is that they can be forgivable uh, after a period of time. So this loan essentially covers what a surety might otherwise have funded in a traditional financing situation, so you need to, you need to push the principals to get out there and get these loans. It's got to act fast. We, we've, got a, we've got a number of banking contacts, and one of them told us that uh, they've already got 1,900 applications and they're, they're, they're hoping that they can process about 100 a day. So, <laughs> these things are going to really, really go fast. There's a finite amount of money. It's, it's, it's a lot of money. It's $3.4 billion, but it's going to go fast. You, you, can, uh, you can count on that. The other thing that, that the government has done is it's expanded the Economic Injury Disaster Loan Program under the SBA. Uh, this expansion allows more businesses to obtain disaster lo- loans in light of the pandemic. Such loans are available to small businesses in amounts up to $2 million for economic injury caused by, by COVID-19. Currently um, the disaster loans are only available to small businesses in, in states that have made a disaster declaration. If a business qualifies, the SBA is hoping to make decisions on these applications within two to three weeks. Payment terms can extend up to 30 years and interest rates are around 3.75%. So, uh, another tool to, uh, to to look at to try to uh, defray some of the losses or costs that are being experienced by people as a result of uh, of the pandemic. The last topic that, that I'll talk about is the the fact that typical legal tools may not work. As a result of, of the pandemic, many court systems have shut down or implemented emergency procedures or protocols that modify, limit, or postpone the normal operations of the courts. The extent of the emergency action varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, so you're going to need to check what protocols are in place in specific jurisdictions. But The effect of the new emergency operations procedures may be to take away many of the bread and butter tools that sureties typically rely on. So, for example, it may be difficult or impossible to get a TRO for a books and records review or injunctive relief to enforce a collateral demand. In some instances, injunctive relief or declaratory relief may be necessary to protect other rights, stop certain actions, or preserve the status quo, but many courts have canceled hearings and trials for all but very limited emergency matters. Actions like default judgments, summary judgments, or confessed judgments may all languish in the courts as, uh, as they're closed or co- court staffs are reduced to skeleton crews. So, so a lot of our tools that we would normally um, use are not may not be available in certain jurisdictions. In some circumstances, it may be possible to petition the court for an emergency electronic or other remote hearing, but your situation would likely need to be fairly unusual. The status of local courts and government offices may also impact the surety's ability to secure various collaterals. For example, it might not be possible to record a deed of trust or file a UCC-1 financing statement. Uh, As public health officials have been warning, it it's going to get worse before it gets better, so if you're in a situation where the court or, or the public offices have not been impacted by COVID-19, uh, you may want to consider taking steps now to enforce and protect your rights before closures um, or restrictions are put in place. And one of the things that I think sureties are going to really need to focus on in this environment is that with limited access to the courts is going to be the uh you know the, the power of attorney rights that are in your typical indemnity agreements and you can use those to seek what I would what I would call self-help remedies and uh and use use the powers that have been uh assigned in in the indemnity agreements to take actions that are necessary um you know when when you don't have a court behind you to enforce. So uh with that I would turn it over to Justin.
3: Okay, thanks Mike um and uh, thanks to everyone uh, out there uh, my kind of role was to take uh, as we um said in kind of our flyer for this uh, special podcast was to to send in some questions um and so first off thank you for sending those questions uh we always like to hear what's uh on uh, all of you all's minds uh, especially in this time uh so the first thing i would just like to say quickly is that uh, Based on my scanning of those questions that we did receive, um, hopefully many of those were answered by what you just heard from Cindy, Tom, uh, and Mike. A uh, lot of good information um, in there. So uh, with that being said, um, I will just want to briefly address um, two separate questions uh, that we received. One, uh, something we kind of haven't talked about yet, and, and two, I'll just uh, parrot off some of the things that, that Mike just discussed in, in his topics. So, one question we received was about um, subcontractor default insurance or SDI claims. Uh, and that question was pretty much with, with all of that going on right now with the virus, the contractors are asking whether they can terminate a subcontractor that's covered by an SDI policy, for their non-performance and then make a claim under that policy. Um, so, of course, uh, kind of, you know, going back to something that Cindy mentioned is just, you're always gonna need to look at your specific policy or contract for what that says. Um, so, if, if, if you have a contractor who has an SDI policy and they're asking questions, it's probably always best to, uh, you know, have them refer or look to what that specific policy says. But going to the question, one kind of general feature of an SDI compared to, to some of the other tools out there, is that the contractor can, in a way, unilaterally declare the subcontractor in default for its non-performance. Or said another way, it's really the contractor that can determine, you know, when uh, to declare their sub in default. Um, And move forward. Um, But something else, of course, to keep in mind with SDI is that is generally then the contractor that must then uh, complete the work uh, that the sub did and then add up all those expenses. And then that would be the claim being made against the policy for the work that the the contractor uh, did complete. Um, so, SDI in generally is kind of risky for subcontractors and beneficial to general contractors because it gives the GCs that kind of unilateral control um, uh, in terms of when to default the, the sub. And, you know, in the instance that a sub disagrees with a decision about a default, really that leaves their only recourse. Um, at that time would be to to litigate, and which Mike just said in times like this can can be difficult. There's also a lot of uncertainty in the SDI context because there's there's a there's a large void in terms of legal precedent and case law and treatment of SDI policies out there. Um, and I can confirm, having done a recent kind of Westlaw dig into this, that there really just is not a lot of direct court treatment on. SDI uh, policies uh, and specific provisions and specific uh, contractor sub interactions in that context. Uh, if these issues are litigated, you can probably look at some general legal treatment of other provisions and similar insurance policies that courts have addressed. Um, but given that there's not a lot of, uh, you know, kind of legal background to rely on, if, if a contractor is going to be making a decision, it, it needs to be kind of uh, uh, thought out and really looked into independently because there's just not a lot of uh, case law guidance out there on that. Um, and lastly, it's important to look, and and again, this is some of the things that Cindy and Tom has discussed, but you need to look closely at that SDI policy for what is excluded. Um, common in SDI policies, like a lot of insurance policies, are exclusions for uh, war, acts of war, acts of terrorism, uh, nuclear incidents, etc. cetera. Um, so one may need to look at a specific policy to see if it has any kind of act of God um, or epidemic, pandemic, uh, or other related exclusions um, that may exclude uh, defaults directly related to those type situations um, from being covered uh, under a policy. So if you have a subcontractor uh, that's defaulted, Uh, because of one of those things or because of this current kind of COVID-19 situation, it's probably worth taking a look at what that policy says about relevant exclusions. Um, Another topic that we received, and again, Mike kind of touched on this uh, in terms of um, your ability to kind of go to the courts now, but we received the question of what happens with pending litigation. So say you're in the middle of a case right now Uh, Is everything on hold or are things still going? Um, So, again, that answer is going to depend specifically on on what jurisdiction your case is in. Um, From from a look, it appears that almost all jurisdictions, state and federal, have put some kinds of uh, limitations in place, uh, whether that's merely the continuing of jury trials uh, or, like here in Virginia, we're under a, a, quote, unquote, judicial emergency Um, which kind of, as Mike suggested, is really limiting things to emergency uh, hearings and and things only, uh, and has continued a lot of of pending deadlines. Uh, So that has led to some uh, logistical kind of pandemonium, to say the least. So in in many ways, litigation um, is on hold because of the kind of the bumping of deadlines, the rescheduling of, of hearings and trials. Um, Courts now are trying to get on board with doing uh, things like telephonic uh, and electronic hearings, but that's kind of a a slow process in many places. Um, But there is also a push uh, to get things that can be resolved kind of on the papers, uh, decided on the papers. So, say, those summary judgment or those big dispositive motions out there. It makes for an interesting time because I think a lot of, you know, your attitude on that is going to depend on your positioning in your pending case. Uh, If you feel like you got a really strong summary judgment motion out there, uh, it may be the the current climate may be beneficial in a way because a a judge that would have had to wait to then hold a hearing and hear from the parties, uh, you know, may just ask for some extra briefing that can be submitted while all this is going on. Um, and potentially uh, resolve that issue a little quicker. Um, The same thing being that judges now have more time available to them as they're not being bogged down by regular hearings and their dockets, that they can hopefully uh, take some time back in their chambers to resolve some outstanding issues. So maybe to the extent that you've had a motion that's been out there for a while, um, now may be a good time to to go and, and push for that to get resolved. Uh, same thing, too. Mike mentioned uh, making a deal. Uh, you know, this might also be a time where, depending on your positioning in a case, uh, to maybe push uh, for the resolution um, of it. There's been a lot of write-up about judges uh, even issuing orders, uh, asking kind of opposing parties to be cordial, recognize the difficulties of this times, and maybe work towards resolving cases. Uh, that can be resolved, given that uh, a lot of the litigation status is uncertain for a while. Um, the last thing I'll kind of say on that issue, and again, it's, it's related to a bit what Mike said, but there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of um, courts that are continuing deadlines and things out there. But it's important to keep in mind um, how your jurisdiction that you may have claims or cases is handling things like the statutes of limitations. Uh, or statutory deadlines um, for filing things such as mechanic's liens. Um, we've a lot of what's been discussed so far has to do about uncertainty um, issues about you know who has to pay whom, who is excused from paying, is a certain deadline getting bumped down the road, is the project on hold? Um, as Mike said, preserve and protect, and that's something that we're always thinking about as lawyers is making sure rights are protected. Um, so, again, and I think it's just worth reiterating, but going off what Mike was saying, you really need to check and see in your jurisdiction, is is it just um, court deadlines that are being bumped, or is it also statute of limitations and statutory deadlines? You don't want to have a situation where, uh, you know, uh, a an obligee and a contractor and subs are going back and forth about who needs to get paid what, um, and then you have a a statutory uh, period for filing a mechanics lien that, that wasn't told, that's now come and gone because of all this back and forth about who's being paid whom. Um, same thing on the surety side with things like notice um, and maybe other statutory or contractual deadlines, um, kind of like what Tom said about an obligee, you can still expect a check. Well, even with all of this happening, things like email and letters can still be sent Um, so a court might not be able to, for example, extend a a contractual notice deadline. Um, so it's important to, to pay attention to all those, um, those deadlines and things that exist outside of legal deadlines that can be extended by courts. Uh, And it's important to think about it from both an offensive and defensive standpoint in terms of, uh, things that the surety needs to do and things that, you know, um, principles or claimants need to do to the surety. Um, And kind of my parting PSA on that uh, is, you know, when it comes to things like notice and deadlines, it's best to play it safe now uh, and try to comply with uh, the the deadlines um, that are out there, uh, especially if there's a question about whether it's been extended or not, uh, because we just don't really know how judges are going to treat some of these extension and deadline issues going forward, uh, especially in cases that, you know, we don't know how long this is gonna last. Um, You might be dealing with a motion uh, eight months to a year from now uh, regarding a deadline that was at issue uh, right here and right now. And we don't really know how courts uh, and judges are what the attitudes are gonna be towards some of these things. Um, down the road looking back so it's better to get that lien filed or that notice sent out now to have yourself protected Uh, even if your deadline maybe does turn out to be bumped um, just to make sure that you don't have to be in a situation where you're trying to um, explain things away uh, maybe months down the line so with that, uh, hopefully that addressed a couple of the questions along with uh, what my colleagues have said. But uh, I will send it back uh, for wrap up.
1: Okay, thanks, Justin. Uh, before I open up the line for questions, I want to let everyone know that the next regularly scheduled edition of Surety today will be on Monday, April 13th, at 12:30 Eastern Time. Uh, George Backrack and I will discuss tendering completion contractors. So thanks so much for joining us today. We uh, we hope that everyone. We'll be especially vigilant and safe out there and we look forward to speaking with you again in just 10 days. And uh, now I'm gonna unmute the line. Okay, uh, do we have any questions out there? Hi,
0: this is Kim Moore with, aid, um, with ICW Group. How are you all? Hello. So I have a question. What, If anything, can we do proactively knowing that some of our principals may not do anything until after the time in which um, they would need to give some kind of notice that that they have a some sort of, you know, the delay that you were talking about? Is there anything? Or do you recommend maybe the agents get involved? This this is Cindy. That's what I'm thinking, that maybe this is something your underwriting side and and agents uh, can get involved in. Certainly, with my contractor clients, I've asked them to review every active contract they have, see what's the notice. And even if they're not experiencing a delay now, uh, to sort of send out a letter that says, because of the pandemic, you know, we're doing everything to mitigate, but we want to put you on notice that you know, we may experience a delay and, you know, we can't quantify it at this time, but we're giving this notice and, you know, and and reference the notice provision of the contract. Uh, but I, I think on the claim side, it's a little harder for us to really do so much. But, you know, like I said, I think it is, it is maybe a, a underwriting uh, agent role to sort of make sure that people are, are being proactive here. Thank you, that's a great idea.
2: Hi, this is Dan Holdencamp, CNA. I may have submitted my question this morning too late. Um, it kind of went to uh, what sort of grace the surety might have, if it's waiting on its principles, defenses, or response of any kind to claims, or, uh, payment or performance. Um, you know, to to grace from the assertion of bad faith or not handling a claim timely, et cetera, um, because is a surety expected to be able to run the business as usual in a way that maybe others aren't. Yeah, I think I think the sureties, you know, are
1: going to be in a position of of being able to, to you know, seek some kind of uh, lenient or extension. Ordinarily, you know, I would say we'll file, you know, file something in it to, to preserve or protect your rights, but that might not help you, but I think you might still have to do that if you're in a situation where you really can't gather the information because, you know, the principal is shut down and, and they don't have the information to give you, but you're under a deadline from, you know, some kind of a, a state, uh, mandated response time, you know, you may be in that position where if you can't reach an understanding with the claimant, then, then you may have to file something in court, even if, you know, that may not get resolved, but at least you've got some protection that you sought, you know, you sought the intervention of the court to, to extend your deadline or give you, you know, give you extra time in light of the circumstances.
0: Yeah, this is... Cindy, I think, yeah, the key is, is also, in addition to that, just document, document, communicate. I mean, now more than ever, I think that uh, communicating, even if, if it's a non-substantive, but to explain why and just, you know, paper this and make sure that you're showing the efforts that you were made to reach your, your principal and letting the the claimant know what steps you've taken uh, I think will go a long way with the courts that it's not just that you you know, that you've made every effort uh, that you've reasonably could under the circumstances.
1: I think I think someone's gonna be pretty hard pressed to say that uh, the pandemic has affected literally everyone, but sureties are exempt from that and they shouldn't they shouldn't be affected. I mean I think I think a court is gonna have a, a hard time buying that argument, you know, assuming that assuming that you've got legitimate impact. I mean not... I've talked to a bunch of consultants, and they're all they're all open for business. They're all ready to go, and and will go to projects and are going to projects now. So so there is some investigation that can be done, and there are things that sureties can do to, you know, gather information and respond. But um, I'm sure there's also going to be cases where where you can't. But I think your your email also talked about sort of like a the industry ought to be careful in, 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 in pointing to the pandemic as an excuse for everything. That, that uh, you know, you, you end up giving the industry a bad name if you're pointing to the pandemic, but really, there really wasn't any impact or any inability caused by it for, you know, the to, to take action. So, yeah, the industry's got be, to be careful in that respect, too. Any other questions? All right. Well, our special edition went uh, went really long. We were we we're about an hour, over an hour now. Uh, apologize for the technical difficulties starting up. I appreciate everybody calling in, and hopefully you'll join us uh, on on the thirteenth. Thank you, everybody, and uh, stay safe. Bye bye.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Surety today. Audio recordings and white papers from prior episodes are available on the Surety Today page of the Wright, Constable, and Skeen website at wcslaw.com backslash surety-today.